Anyways, Mark chapter 12, uh, we're seeing Jesus' ministry wind down as the persecution grows and he approaches uh, this crucifixion. Uh, we have seen him wrangling with the religious leaders as they're trying to trip him up. He has overturned the money changers table. He speaks at the beginning of chapter 12 about the parable of the wicked vine dressers and how they'll be judged. Uh, they try to trip him up with should we pay taxes or not. He sets them on their ear about that. The Sadducees come got weird questions about uh, the resurrection and Jesus finishes uh, those statements out and uh, they're all afraid to uh, question him after that as it says at the end of verse 34 in verse 35 it says then jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple now this is something that i always try to point out that jesus ministry is a teaching ministry um, so very often within christianity uh, there are groups of us that want to focus on the miraculous portion of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is healing, and Jesus is raising the dead, and Jesus is giving sight to the blind, and Jesus is over here five, feeding 5,000. Absolutely, all of those things are going on. But what you see is Jesus' focus, his personal focus, is always on teaching. He, he says countless times, you know, I have to leave here and go over there because I must teach them. And I have to go and teach. And he arrived and taught. And on the Sabbath, he was in the temple and he taught. And he went to the synagogue and he taught. And he taught. He's constantly teaching. From the teachings come miraculous occasions. It is, you know, the scripture saying that where the Christians go and where they minister, that signs and wonders would follow. The signs and wonders would follow where the Christians go. It isn't to say that Christians would go in an effort to perform signs and wonders. The, everywhere they went, they taught. They, they, they went to bring the truth of God's word, to preach the gospel. Signs and wonders followed. We've moved into this place of Christianity where Christians are instead following the signs and the wonders. Oh, you know, Toronto, we've all got a 1992, we've got to rush up to Toronto, you know, in the 87, everybody's got to rush out to Kansas City, you know, and now, you know, everybody's going to go down to Lakeland, Florida. Oh, no, wait, you know, now we're all going up to, you know, Brentwood. Now we're all, you know, it's just wherever they're proclaiming the latest bunch of miracles, that's where everybody wants to congregate. You know, you had a poor young woman here years ago that had a pretty serious medical condition and uh, you know I advised her you know you need medical attention and well you know over here it was so weird over here at the International House of Prayer you know IHOP literally over here at IHOP they're performing miracles and instead I'm I'm going to invest a large sum of money and and you know, transfer my life out there and be part of that ministry because I'm going to be healed out there. And she did just lose a bunch of money and had to come back here with the same condition and go seek medical attention. You know, it, it's ridiculous uh, that the body of Christ takes advantage of the body of Christ. Okay, uh, Jesus is teaching continuously. And as he taught in the temple, uh, his statement, how is it? that the scribes say, and this is something to take note of, right? Uh, he's going to reference the scripture, but the scripture doesn't exactly say this, okay? Uh, how is it that the scribes say? And, and we're going to run into that continuously in our walk and in our faith where the church teaches something, right? Have you ever heard someone say, well, how come you Christians say or do? Yeah, and you know what? You can't really deny that, right? The Christians say or do those things. Uh, is it biblical? Oftentimes not. Right? There's a tradition or a method or a practice that doesn't line up with the Word of God. We want to be very careful of that. Uh, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day, saying you nullify the Word of God through your traditions and many such things you do. 
Right? So here he confronts, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, he's referencing Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly, uh, meaning uh, eagerly. Uh, they hear that in such a way that, that it, it gives them insight and also gives them grounds to, hey, wait a minute, we thought the scribes were never wrong. Now, these are the guys that study the word so continuously, right? And, and what does he say when he's confronting them, you know, in our last studies? You know, you're in error because you don't know the word of God. Have you never read the book of Moses? You know, he asks the Sadducees. They only read the books of Moses. Uh, Jesus confronts them continuously with the fact that you're in error because you don't actually you don't actually know the God of the Scripture. You've taken a, you know a methodological approach to uh, the uh, Word of God without actually knowing and having a relationship with God. So you know here part of the problem, uh, well really the whole of the problem is Jesus has begun to refer to himself as the Son of God. Uh, that is upsetting a bunch of people's apple carts at this point, right? Son of man, uh, they know that's a declaration of the Messiah. Uh, Daniel refers to the coming Messiah as the son of man. And, and uh, Jesus begins to refer to himself and allow himself to be referred to as the son of man. That raises some people's you know, antenna, and they're kind of worried about what, you know, is he implying that he's the Messiah, different things uh, that are, Coming along the way, John referring to him as the Lamb of God. Certain phraseology, he starts referring to himself as the Son of God. Look, the people of the day, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses might struggle with that. Mormons might struggle with that. The people of the day understood, right? Uh, dog gives birth to dog. Right? Uh, cat gives birth to cat. Uh, human gives birth to human. God gives birth to God. Son of God, you're saying you're God, is, is what they understood that to mean. Uh, if, if that confuses you as far as being a student of the scripture, Mark chapter 3, uh, Mary, his mother, and his brothers get word that Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of God, and the scripture records they thinking him beside himself, went to collect him. They thought he was crazy. They, they were going to put an end to his ministry. And that's the occasion where he's just healed the man that's been lowered down through the roof, and the house is crowded and full, and no one can get inside. And when Mary and the boys show up outside, they say, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? Except for those here in this room that do the will of my heavenly father. He was shunning them verbally because they were trying to take charge of him, thinking that he was crazy. So here, this statement is the clarification of, no, no, I am the son of God. You know, uh, whose son, right, is the Messiah going to be? Son of David. Not necessarily. Why? Because no Jewish father ever, ever referred to, to his son as my Lord, right? Always, always the father was superior. It doesn't matter, right? Joseph becomes ruler. His father never refers to him as my Lord, right? In fact, Pharaoh refers to his father as Lord. This authority is never transferred downward. If you've descended from someone, uh, then you are, you know, you are always in honor of your father. Here, he's pointing out the scripture itself refers to the Messiah as Lord. You know, God, Kyriosk, Yahweh, L O R I D. You know, this, uh, you know, Y H W H. This is this is the Lord Himself. How in the world could that be? He stumps everyone, and 
And remember that where this began, they're saying, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus is pulling out his credentials. He's getting more and more brass about it because he understands I can do this because it is going to facilitate and generate my crucifixion, right? In the past, uh, he kept those things back, right? He would heal and say, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. Why? Because he's slowing down the process to where he's going to be declared as the Messiah, right? Uh, that needs to happen on April 6, 32 AD. He can't have it happen before then. And he's going to control that. Why? Because Daniel the prophet had been told that from the order to restore and rebuild the temple that the coming of the Messiah would be 100, you know, 73,880 days to the day. So he's got to control where he's declared Messiah. And now he's crossed the line, been declared as a Messiah, and crucifixion lies directly in front of him. So you know what? I am God. He's making these proclamations more and more as he moves forward. The problem then, like the problem now, is they were expecting a human being. They were expecting a Messiah, but they were just expecting him to be like a prophet. And they derived that partially from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where uh, the Lord speaking uh, through Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now, there's an interesting element to that class. The first one is, uh, it was Jesus, right? Raised up like Moses, a leader to deliver them out of uh, you know, sin and into the kingdom. Certainly there is that thought process, but there's also another fulfillment of this which pertains to the Antichrist. It's sort of odd, and we'll look at a couple more things here. Uh, you know, for some of you, you're looking at me like, how could that be? Well, uh, follow this process. Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15, uh, we quoted, uh, that's also quoted in Acts chapter 3, 22, for note takers, but then Jesus in John chapter 5 at verse 43 says, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes, and that's the idea, if takes three different forms in the Greek language, and it's it's the idea of sense. It's not the idea of not sure if it's going to happen. In this case, it's the idea of sense another comes in his own name, him you will receive. It's referring to the Antichrist, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, leaders in Israel speaking today in modern times, speaking of the coming of the Messiah, because they don't believe it has happened yet, they believe him to be a political leader. They believe him to be one who will do two things in particular. One is he will bring world peace, and the second one is that he will allow them to have their temple. Okay, so so really, that's all they're looking for. It, honestly, they, they they they've settled into the place where um, they they don't care, you know, nationality. They don't care anything. If somebody can come and provide us with peace and the temple, then in their opinion, that's the Messiah. They've made statements about we don't care if he's a devil or an angel. Wow. Uh, you don't care if he's a devil or an angel, if he'll bring peace and allow you to have the temple, you'll accept him as the Messiah. Th think about, think about uh, you know, how vulnerable a place their hearts are in if they would ever say such a thing. Remarkable. Prime ministers have said that. that that's remarkable where we stand. If you're not aware of it, Temple Institute uh, and a few organizations around them say they they presently have everything to build the temple that there is there is nothing there is nothing that bars them other than allowance they, they have all the articles for the temple they even say some of them have even gone as far as to say we've already organized the priesthood i don't know if that's wild speculation or not but you know it's possible 
They're, they're that poised for construction and in the ready. Uh, they've set themselves up. Christians, let me just uh, encourage you, you know, Christians that are like, I support that idea. You know, it hastens the day. You know, if that's coming, then that means Christ is coming. Yeah, and that also means one quarter of the world's population is going to be wiped out. Death, destruction, mayhem. You know, consider what you might be involving yourself in, uh, in supporting uh, financially, prayerfully, any of that. Uh, pray for the peace of Israel. Right? We're told to do that, and that's uh, with, without flaw there. Uh, 1238, it says, Then he said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue, the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Beware of the religious who function this way. You know, <coughs> clothing that, uh, you know, invokes attention. The long robes. That you you know you're supposed to think wow ooh look at that guy and the way that he's dressed uh, it doesn't matter you know what culture what century where we're talking about religious leaders who dress in such a way that people take note of them uh, that that is something the Lord says to shun and stay away from. And have nothing to do. So if I show up here in a long flowing robe and a giant hat and a big wooden cane next week, right? You might want to be cautious. Or, you know, some absolutely ridiculous suit and, you know, pounds of jewelry and that which would attract attention. It's interesting how these things beset Christianity and those of faith. They love the greetings and the marketplaces. And it isn't just, right, I'm excited when I see my friends. I'm excited when I see you guys in public. That's not what he's talking about. It's if someone will shout, you know, uh, Rabbi, you know, yeah, yes, that's me, right? You know, yes, I am a rabbi, you know, is the idea. So that so that people around can, oh, there's a rabbi in mercy. Yes, I'm me. In the flowing robes and the big hat, that's me. I'm I am the rabbi. Is the attitude? They love this the the public greetings. Uh, you know that people know who they are. The best seats in the synagogue. Best seats in the synagogue uh, in Jesus' day. You're going to see it a few different ways. Is the front row, and it isn't just like my wife has to sit in the front row. She'll tell you, I'm, I don't think I'm throwing her under the bus. She has to sit in the front row because uh, she's easily distracted. Uh, so, so anything that's going on in front of her will take her mind away from the sermon, and she doesn't want to miss one syllable, right? So she always sits, you know, if she can, dead center front so that she can focus entirely on what's being taught. If we sit you know, rows back, several rows. I'm back of the bus guy. You know what I'm saying? Where is the exit? I want to sit right next to that door. You know, it's just the way that I am. She wants to be in the front. If she sits in the back with me, she's like, I didn't hardly get anything out of that sermon. Distraction. It isn't the idea of, you know, choice seat for attention and its recognition. And also in the synagogues, the best seats were in the front and they would correct the people who were reading from the scripture. So the person that stands up and is going to do the reading for that day, right? If they mispronounce or miss, you know, and skip a word or anything, that they're just back up. You know, they they may, they're they're making sure that it's delivered. And then, of course, everyone who's experiencing it understands that the person who's reading and doing the delivering isn't actually in control. It's the front row. 
And this is what Jesus is saying. They love the best seats, the place where everyone recognizes they're in control and they're making the corrections, right? He just got done saying they're in error because they don't know who, uh, you know, the Messiah is. They don't know uh, that, that he's actually God in the flesh. They think he's the son of David. They think he's merely a man. So stop listening to these guys, even though they sit in the front row and intimidate everybody who's presenting during your Sabbath day's worship at the synagogues and in the temple. They love the best seats and the places at the feast. And that's the same idea of, you know, there's a place of prominence and it's usually right next to the master of the feast, right or left hand. You know, they want to make sure that wherever uh, they are being seated when you come into the feasts that are of holy celebration, that everybody goes, oh my goodness, I mean, I know that guy, but I didn't realize he was going to be you know, at the head of the table. And it changes their opinion of them from that day forward. They feel intimidated every time they're around them. Why? Because they are of that significance, both religiously and politically. Jesus is saying, the way it's worded in the Greek language is, continuously ever be on guard against the scribes, in the way that they function. Don't let your guard down. Always watch for this. And I say again, the best place to watch for this is in your own heart. Right? Jesus gives command to his own apostles and tells them, when you go into the feast, take the lowest seat. Right? Because the tendency was, you know, to move up to the best seat and, uh, you know, embarrass the master of the feast so that he can't be, you know, saying to you, oh, I'm sorry, you're in the wrong seat. Yeah. Put them in an awkward position to where, you know, they sort of have to let you stay there. Or if they make you move, you know, they're interfering with your friendship. Uh, Jesus is saying, when you go in, expect nothing. Go for the bottom. Look for the lowest position, right? Be the servant. Wash everybody's feet if you really want uh, to be first in the kingdom. He, he then moves into that discussion about devouring widows' houses, right? Scribes, they're also lawyers, right? They function according to the Levitical law. And so widows would become especially vulnerable when their husbands passed away, you know, taxation and a number of different elements within the circumstances, and especially if they had no sons, right? Uh, the, the social environment had become such that these men could easily step in, turn a few legal screws, and the next thing you know, they own the widow's property, all of it. And uh, they, they couldn't so much seize it, though they sometimes did, but they would, they would take it in ownership. And then when the widow passes away, then it belongs to them. And uh, they would do this under the pretense of it, their... their um, uh, seizing it for the temple. Okay, so, so you know, this poor widow, and she has, and because there's no husband, therefore there's no inheritance, right, in the land according to the law and how it should fall to the next in line to there. So there's no, no inheritance. So, you know, that actually needs to roll back into the temple. So all of this property needs to come to the temple. When it rolled in, they got percentage. So, so if they could capture a widow's property and get it turned over to the temple uh, when it finally either right there in the moment and they leave her homeless uh, or if it was when she passed away and it rolled over to the ownership of the temple and all they can do at that point is sell it right because the the levites can't own but it benefits their pocketbook and they are the ones who are the the greatest beneficiaries in it so so it actually behooved them right to be manipulative and to steal widows' properties from them as far as, you know, a worldly sense of things. And Jesus is saying, you know who these guys are. You know how they function. You know, this, this is a thing that, you, you know, you've, you've been bugged by in your culture. And he just calls it right out as it is that they're a bunch of crooks, have nothing to do with it. They, you know, they make long prayers, uh, but it's for a pretense. N not that long prayers are sinful. Right. You shouldn't be constantly like, you know, refining your prayer. So it just comes down to like three words. 
You know, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Pour your heart out to God with the intensity and sincerity that you want to. It's when you make a long prayer for a pretense. You know, so that everyone can see, oh my goodness, you know, I thought he was done praying. We're going to go another half hour. Okay, you know what I'm saying? And you just drag on and why? So that everybody can go, this guy is so holy. I can't believe it. A 15-minute prayer, that was insane. It's just so that can be, people can be wowed by your supposed spiritualness. So avoid that. They receive the greater condemnation. Uh, why? Because this is a show. All of this is a show. You know, who are they? Fakes, hypocrites, liars, thieves. Presently engaged in a murderous plot is, is who they are. Uh, so avoid being like them. Verse 41, right? Talk about the widows. Talk about how they are taken advantage of. Then Move right into verse 41. Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw, notice this, how the people put money into the treasury and many who are rich put in much. How? Not how much. Jesus isn't taking note of that. So where Jesus sits at the moment, across from him, there are 13 separate like trumpet-like receptacles where the people could go and put their money in uh, for the temple. And uh, they were labeled uh, according to what you were giving. There were free will offerings uh, that you could give. Uh, there were temple maintenance places, you know, a place to put. You could uh, give money uh, that specifically supplied doves uh, for the impoverished, so that if if they could not afford a, a an offering, and the idea was that you, you know you were trying to help people have a relationship with God and have their sins covered, they couldn't afford uh, an offering on their own. So people would give, and or other other uh, uh, offering receptacle was uh, for the wood that was to be burned. On the altar, so you have all these different. Uh, one was for widows uh, that you would give, and uh, it would be imparted to them. So, so here Jesus is looking at how they give, and the way the Greek describes the how is that Jesus is looking inside of them as they give. Okay, his observation is not. Uh, do they lift their hand up very high and let the money fall? Do they, you know, it's not a physical observation, right? You know, are they trying to be stealth and they sort of throw it in as they pass by? It's not that level of observation. Jesus is spiritually x-raying everyone's heart. As they come, he's examining them in how they give. It's a remarkable thing when you consider who Jesus is and what he's about to go through, the power that he has at his disposal all the time, right? To, to know people's hearts. We see that repeatedly, right? The scripture records. And knowing their thoughts, right? He confronts them. You know, and they drag the woman out in the street and they're going to stone her to death. And Jesus says, he who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And wouldn't you love to know what he was writing in the street? In the dust, uh, as from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they start dropping their rocks and leaving. You know, the insight that Jesus has continuously. And this is sort of what's going on here. He knows and he's examining as they come and they give. And, you know, Jesus must have been like very blessed. Some come and they give and he can sense the purity and the honesty and he knows he knows their full purposed intention, and he's like, wow, that's great. And somebody else comes by, and who knows? It's completely corrupt. You know, the money they have in their hand, they got through terrible means, you know, I'm imagining. You know, and, and you know, they're they're you know, they've had it all exchanged down into the smallest coins, so that when they give, it looks like they're giving a massive amount, you know. 
have your entire tithe converted to pennies. You know what I'm saying? It's going to bring in a barrel and dump it in type of thing. Jesus is watching and he's, he's blessed and heartbroken with what he sees in this moment. How many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, uh, which make a quadrarens. That's one sixty-fourth of a day's wage, right? And people have tried to calculate, uh, you know, uh, what that means in modern terms. It's constantly shifting, okay? So just get your calculator out, figure out what you make in a day, and then hit divide by 64, okay? She comes in with this, and there's another interesting element to it. Uh, this was the minimum amount allowed for an offering. Literally, they would refuse. You come in with a single mite, please do not offer it. Right? It was so inconsequential that they literally had a minimum. You could slip it in if you wanted to, but they had posted, like, don't offer simply a mite. You know, two mites is, is bare minimum. Okay, so she, she drops in this two mites. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, assuredly, and now we hear these things and they get um, sort of you know poetic to us, right? Verily, verily, I say unto you. We sort of lose sight. This, this is the sort of thing that, like, I don't even know how to relay it. It's like Jesus would grab you, you know, imagine if I greeted you and you came through the door and I grabbed a hold of you physically and said, hey, listen, I got to tell you something. I mean, you know, you know, I've got you by the jacket and I've given you a little shake and you're like, what? Man? Well, you know, tell me what. It, that's the sort of thing here. Assuredly, there is no doubt about this. I'm telling you with an absolute sense is what Jesus is saying. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Do not miss what I am saying to you right now is what he is saying. Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all these who have given to the treasury. Now, if you've made the mistake in reading this over the years and thinking that this widow has given more than anyone else has ever come in and given. No, no, that's actually not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this widow has given more than everyone else combined. T take all of the giving, you know, this day or, you know, in this period, uh, maybe in the history of the temple. I don't know, but he's, he's giving that all-encompassing thought of she's given more than everyone else combined in this. Now, something else to examine within this is that she's identified as a widow. And Jesus, they recognize her as a widow, and Jesus identifies her as a widow. That means her loss is recent enough that she's still clothed as a widow. She's visibly identifiable as a widow, right? Someone whose, you know, husband passed away many years ago would still not be wearing the clothes of a widow. She comes in identifiable as a widow and gives, you know, two mites. And Jesus is saying she's given more than everyone else combined. It's a remarkable statement. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. You guys, the way that's worded is she has nothing else. Not, not, not she has no more money. She has nothing else. There are many of us who, if we went through loss, such as this woman has gone through, we probably wouldn't be found at church worshiping the Lord with the last of every ounce of everything we have. There are many who you'd find at the end of a bar. 
who you'd find in some sinful location, gratifying their flesh, building their bitterness, drowning themselves in their sin, to try and feel some pleasurable thing. This widow knows that her only resource is God. And she's gone to the presence of the Lord, and she's poured out every last thing she has. So that's a remarkable example. This is one of those occasions where Jesus grabs his students by the ear and says, look at that right there. There's only a few occasions where he does such a thing. When the centurion says, you don't have to come to my house. I understand authority. I'm a man under authority. You say the word, my servant's going to be made well. Jesus says, hold the phone. Everybody look at this guy's faith. I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. When you see a moment in the scripture like this, where Jesus just slams on the brakes to make sure everybody pays attention, it's way worth our time to take note. Go from contrasting the religious leaders who take advantage of the widows to a widow being exemplified as one to follow, as outshining everyone else in the circumstance. Chapter 13, looking at verse 1, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now, I have reached over into Matthew chapter 24 on a number of occasions, and I've gone from every other angle in dealing with what is referred to here as the Olivet Discourse. So, John Mark and Peter, working together to compile the book of Mark, have condensed everything that they've taught us into its most solidified form. So as we read through this, uh, don't be discouraged with uh, how much information is here and how much I reach into other uh, books. It was the intention of these two authors working together that they would deliver a concise understanding of that teaching. You want far more expansive and in-depth than Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are really where we get a full spectrum of things from there. So I'll do my best uh, to move through this. The simplicity of this is the temple at this point is astonishing. Okay, um, To this day, there are foundational stones in place that make up the temple mount where the temple used to set. Uh, having been there and seen just the remnants, it's astonishing what is there. That's just the temple mount that the temple was on top of. Okay, Some of the stones are estimated to weigh over 145 tons. They're just astonishing. I personally saw one that weighs over 80 tons. You know, when you're talking an object that's 20 feet long, 8 feet high, 12 feet deep, that you can't put your knife in between. They're so perfectly fitted. It's astonishing. They, they, they fashioned the bottom of some of them to match the bedrock. I think I talked about this recently. They were cut elsewhere, transported, set into place, and they perfectly fit, perfectly fit onto the bedrock that was already there. That's just the foundation. You know, I mean, how many times have you walked into a building and seen the foundation and thought, wow, this is astonishing. I mean, the, the temple's foundation is astonishing. The temple that sat on top of it was uh, actually per appearance, because there's a huge structure, and the inside was all cedar, and that's part of how it burned, were magnificent uh, cedar timbers inside. But the whole outside, so massive paved flat area, acres and acres of paved flat area, all white marble, high-polished white marble, right? Uh, dual pillar columns, each side with an overhanging uh, roof, colonnade, all the way around, all polished 
white marble, all the way around the temple. Temple itself overlaid all polished white marble, all imported from Europe, imported from Europe, uh, put in place, and then everything they could overlaid with gold. Massive gold panels, gold crowns, gold, solid gold, everything, solid gold spikes all over the top of the temple to keep the birds from landing on them. So, so you're, you know, your pigeon repellent, all, all of theirs were solid gold spikes. Uh, it is often said in history by many who recorded it, uh, they measured distance. It could be seen with the naked eye from 20 miles away. Okay. And often at first glance, new visitors to the area would mistaken it for a snow capped mountain glistening in the sun. At noonday, uh, when the, the sun was at its peak, often people in the streets would have to shield their eyes from the glare because it was perfectly reflecting the sun back on them. There are some that, uh, you know, they didn't have the instruments, but said that the reflective glare raised the, the temperature in the street as much as 10 degrees, right? The sun just gleaming off from the temple. So when they come out and they're saying to Jesus, can you believe this thing? It isn't just that it's the temple. It is magnificent beyond repair. Construction is going to go on for almost 80 years. It's, it's going to be actually continuing right as uh, Titus Octavian comes in and sacks Jerusalem and destroys the place. They're still working on it. You know, of course, you know, as we move forward, uh, you know, it ends up being burned and the Romans dismantle the whole thing in order to retrieve the gold that melted off from it. So we'll look at what's going on. They're all astounded with it and saying, you know, can you believe the temple They're, you know, saying what manner of stones or what buildings are here? Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these buildings? Now, it's a weird philosophical question that he's asking. It, 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 he gets abstract with them. And it's, I'm stretching it, but just a little. He basically says, are these buildings really here? <laughs> can you actually see them? That's accurate without any stretch. He's saying, can you actually see them? Why? Because they're going to be gone in a very short period of time. I've been there. I can't see them. And that's sort of what Jesus is saying is you think you see them right now? Wait a minute. <laughs> you won't see them. They're going to be gone. Can you actually see them? This is such a, you know, think about this. This is the eternal God, right? This temple is such a short little blip in, in all of eternity that what, what temple? What are we talking about? Right? Th this is nothing more, right? than a momentary sketch that reflects heaven, right? This is an earthly representation of what is in heaven. Humanity has taken its painstaking time to assemble. Why am I dragging this out so much? How many things do we look at that are like we think, oh, they're eternal? No, maybe you don't think that way, right? Do you think that uh, the Capitol building is permanent? Do, do you have it in your mind that the Washington Monument is permanent? The White House is permanent? Did you think that the Twin Towers would always be there? Right? Gone in a day, right? Gone in a day. Did you actually see them? Isn't it strange to see a movie that has the Twin Towers in it? They're gone. They're gone. These things, these things will all be forgotten. All of them, no matter how much time humanity spends, how much effort they put into, all of this is so incredibly temporary. Uh, make sure it's not your point of fixation, right? Make sure that Jesus Christ is your singular point of fixation. That that's what you're worshiping, not the things of this earth. Jesus answered, and do you see these buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Cheesemakers Valley can been completely excavated now, and you could actually see the stones that were thrown down in there. Some of them split right in half. Uh, the temple was just completely destroyed, dismantled. 
greater. They literally brought horse-drawn graders in there in the end when the stones were gone and went back and forth to turn up the soil to retrieve any gold that was there. It was the spoils of war. Orders had been given to not destroy the temple, but two drunken soldiers. There's uh, two different accounts. One is that a drunken soldier threw a burning torch. They, they were blasted out of their minds and threw a burning torch into the temple. The other one is that they shot a firebrand arrow. Either way, two drunken Roman soldiers torched the temple. And it was full of people. Incinerated everyone that was inside. The ins It became an oven. And I, I don't mean that in just a, a cruel description. It, it was stone overlaid with metal. And the inside was an entirely super dry cedar timber frame. Gone. Incinerated everything and everyone that was inside the temple. Uh, so not going to be anything left here. Do you actually see these things? Because, you know, from my eternal perspective, Jesus is saying, not here. Presently, they're not here. <laughs> you think they're here, they're not here. They're already gone. It's an assurance that they're already gone. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and this is why it's called the Olivet Discourse, they asked the question at the temple. And then as he sits on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So if we take what Matthew records and we combine it with what is recorded here in Mark, the three questions that are asked are, when will this take place? What will be the sign of your coming and what will be the end of the age? More specifically in the book of Matthew, Jesus goes through the process of answering those three questions. Most significantly throughout, what he's presenting to them is you need to live continuously in the ready for my appearance. You must constantly be. And then actually all of chapter 25, it's broken into three sections. That's what Jesus delivers as a message, is live in the constant ready for my return. You must always be ready for my return. Uh, that was such a prominent teaching that for the first 100 years of the church's history, all of the church leaders said, you must teach the eminent return of Jesus Christ. If you do not, then you are a heretic and you should be put out of the church. Right? They, they so believed this that when we read the book of Acts, that they sold everything that they had and they lived together communally. Because they were thinking Jesus is going to be back any minute. We need to live as though Jesus is coming back. We need to live without care. We need to just love one another and care for one another. So, so that that communal living wasn't, you know, some Christian endorsement of communism, you know, where we just all take our resources and pull them together and live off from one another's resources. That led to a very impoverished church, so much so that that is the singular reason why Paul was going around to the Gentile churches and taking up collections to take them back to Jerusalem because the church was so impoverished. They had impoverished themselves by living communally, and then the persecution came, and they couldn't get jobs, and their businesses collapsed, and they were left without nothing. Uh, it was the short-sightedness of that. We need to live in a fruitful and productive way as though Jesus Christ is coming back at any minute, right? Do not, do not focus on that thought and go home and just run your credit cards, you know, to the max. The Lord's not calling us to do that. He, he is coming and we need to be aware of it, but uh, responsible living. Verse 5, and Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. Uh, for many will come in my name saying, I am he meaning Jesus, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, you know, the likes of World War I and World War II, 
and kingdom against kingdom. And this is the idea of spiritual entities, right? Hell will rise up against the kingdom of heaven. You're going you're gonna to see the spiritual conflict grow greater and greater. It's going to become more and more and more identifiable as time goes by. Look, when you're watching the news, reading the news, and you hear of one more atrocity, and your heart just breaks, and you're left thinking, like, how in the world could anything like that happen? That is so horrific. How could a parent be so diabolical? These terms... Uh, come to mind, and people often don't even know, diabolical, diablos, devilish, of hell, right? How could something be so terrible? Kingdom will rise against kingdom. Wickedness will rise in a way it never has before. Uh, the, the, The insanity of our culture. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. Now, for the time I have, I'm going to break off right there, but we'll do a little bit of examination of this section. Many will come and say, I'm Jesus. That's literally what he's saying. Before Jesus came, there were a couple of occasions where individuals, one in particular, where an individual rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. And in very short order, that fell apart and subsequently he was killed. Uh, so, you know, there's been that sense of trying to pose as the savior of the world and the Messiah. Certainly since Jesus has come, we've seen many, many throughout history who have shown up and, and presented themselves as Jesus. And they're usually, if you are in the body of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, reading the word of God, they're easily identifiable as false. Yeah. If you're a long ways from knowing and understanding the word and you don't have the Holy Spirit and you have no insight and discernment, then you can get caught up in some of that falsehood, right? Some of the most notable ones, you know, a couple of the most noticeable ones in recent history, uh, modern history, Jim Jones, you know, claiming uh, to be Jesus Christ, the cult grows and then they suddenly pack everything up and go to Guyana. And then, of course, they all drink the Kool-Aid uh, laced with cyanide and die. You know, a thousand people slaughtered in that horrific event. And then, you know, a little later uh, in the 90s, you, you have David Koresh, you know, born under the name Vernon Howell. He changed his name uh, to be reflective of King David, you know, a man after God's own heart. Koresh being the birthplace of... Of Jesus, and he declared himself as as actually being Jesus, and declared himself as being the Lamb of God. Uh, those almost always end tragically, right? Uh, rarely do they end just with misgivings. Uh, they they always end bad, but often when the individual actually claims to be Jesus, it ends up being a really really tormented thing uh, you know historically uh, we've seen this as said over and over again and we shouldn't be surprised as we see people doing it uh, you know presently or in the future uh, as it happens with greater and greater frequency uh, we're just getting closer and closer to the Lord's coming and then he you know makes uh, this statement about Uh, you know, wars and rumors of wars. Uh, You look back through human history and there were long periods of time where there were not huge widespread cataclysmic wars. You know, you, you get up closer to where we are and you start seeing, you know, Alexander and you start seeing, you know, some of these other conquerors. Uh, But those pale in comparison when you get to you know, 1917 and World War One. Uh, you know, as the entire world engages in war, in World War Two, 82 million people died in World War Two. You know, and where we stand today, uh, right now, the world has the the entire world uh, for the past 100 years has been at war for 11 out of 12 years. Since since 1900, 
we we are in a continuous birth pains, right? You know, these aren't Braxton Hicks contractions. Any of us that know what that's about, right? Where you know, pain and yes, contraction, but no, we're not in the birth process yet. You know, that's months or weeks away, months away. You know, when you get to the point where they are overwhelming and they are, uh, you know, very close and no more has it subsided and then there's the next one, those are birth pains when you get to that place. And this is how Jesus describes each of these things. We should expect to see more and more. Well, really, you can, right? I mean, you go to certain places, New York City, you'll run into Jesus about every 50 feet. You know, Hollywood Boulevard, you know, Jesus is, you know, all over the place. You know, there's there's another prophet and another prophet, and yeah, so they're all Jesus. They're all out there doing their thing. Uh, so greater and greater frequency, greater and greater intensity, uh, wars and uh, the conflicts, and, the, and I say again, the spiritual conflicts that we, we see all around us, earthquakes in various places. Um, go on to the International Earthquake Tracking Site, Seismology, and see the, the because, I mean, we didn't have the, the equipment we do, but you know, the catastrophic uh, earthquakes that have happened, like you, you can't ask, like whole cities fall down. Um, you know, there's, there's one. Uh, go back through history and look, and they are spaced apart dramatically. You know, you, you'll have 100 years. You'll have 50 years. You'll have 70 years pass. Uh, right now, about every 10 years uh, is where we're at. Massive, huge earthquakes. It's a blessing when they happen someplace remote. You know what I'm saying? Just the, the wilderness shook at a seven point whatever. Uh, and, uh, you know, it destroyed a lot of natural uh, occurrences. But, you know, as far as humanity goes, the point is they're happening and we're aware of them with greater and greater intensity and greater and greater frequency. Famines uh, on the increase. Famines are dramatically on the increase. And, and I want to be clear again. Uh, people sometimes take world population and they go, oh, you know, dramatic increase in world population, so that's why we're all starving. No, that's not why we're all starving. Um, the reason that there is worldwide starvation is um, there's a few different things that do it right now, but bottom line is they're all human-induced. Okay, That's why people starve to death on planet Earth. Mostly political. Right? They say you got to be a communist, or they say you got to be Muslim, and this whole nation flees to get away from that, and now they're left out in the wilderness starving. Right? I, I was an 80s kid, and you know, Live Aid and all the Ethiopians that were starving was because they all fled into the wilderness of uh, Ethiopia in order to get away from the communists that had taken over their country. Uh, and that's what we see is these political famines. That happened. The second one is actually Monsanto's and uh, agencies like them. Um, they uh, produce sterile seed source, so uh, it will burr the plant, but it either produces no seed or the seed it produces is incapable of growing. Okay? When when you they want you to buy your seed from them every year. Okay? They do not want you to heritage seeds. You raise a crop, you keep a certain portion of your crop uh, so you can turn it back to seed, and then you plant that seed next year, and you do that every year. You keep the heritage seed of your own crops. Uh, most of what is done worldwide in farming uh, has no ability to produce heritage seed whatsoever. Uh, what happens when drought hits? When, you're, when your crop right now fails, right, then you, are, you have no money to buy next year's seed. And so farms fail and crops fail and food source fails. What would ever happen if we had an event where Monsanto's and the likes of them shut down and could not supply seed anymore? A worldwide famine like you've never seen before. And Jesus is saying this is where you're going to end up. You're going to end up in the place where we are right now is what Jesus predicted. Uh, this this is happening all around us. So we'll just end with that thought. That all these are the beginning of sorrows. You know, some people want to say, oh, no, we're in the tribulation right now. We're not in the tribulation right now. Okay. Uh, we are in the precursory elements of it, and we are headed into 
what will be. All of this is God's grace, right? In that the uh, the spiritual alarm clock is going off. So don't don't hit the snooze button. Stay wide awake spiritually and alert because what Jesus Christ is predicting about the end is well it's right upon us and we're going to see these things unfold hopefully you know we'll be watching as spectators from his presence is uh, what we're looking for that's that's what the scripture indicates so if you believe otherwise you're welcome to that opinion but uh, you know when it transpires as i said then you know you'll understand so so that's the time we have for uh, this week let's pray and uh, then we'll pick up at verse 9 next week